Welcome to Base, a podcast about weird stuff. I'm Peter C. Hine, and with me, as is occasionally true, is Stephen James Buckley, my esteemed associate and good friend. Hello, everyone. So, last episode, we got carried away in our discussion of the ultraterrestrial hypothesis. And so we decided to split it into a two-part episode. We discussed a bit of the background of what the ultraterrestrial hypothesis is. We discussed Jacques Vallée. We discussed John Keel. And today we're going to continue with the discussion of the ultraterrestrial interdimensional paraphysical hypothesis. Uh, we're going to talk about Dr. Alan Greenfield. He's a favourite of ours, and I'm really looking forward to discussing him and his writing and his theories and just who he is as well, because he's a great personality. And then I think we're going to move on to some more generalized theories of how the ultra terrestrial hypothesis may connect to other occult phenomena uh, and people such as Crowley, Jack Parsons, and uh, another of our favorites, Paul Weston. Um, and just why it's important to us. First up, I want to get out of the way. Dr. Alan Greenfield, if you are listening, please contact us and come on our show because we'd love to have you as a guest because not only are you a font of knowledge, you're also a very entertaining guest and every single podcast I've listened to with you on has been brilliant. So yeah, we'd love to have you on the show, Mr. Greenfield. Uh, Dr. Greenfield. Dr. Greenfield. Dr. Greenfield yeah. to you. Dr. Greenfield. Don't forget, but, that's, that's, not a way, that's not a way to show your respect to Dr. Greenfield. Actually, on, on the vase quest, on the quest of vase, Greenfield has been constantly present and quite formative to us, actually. Yeah, um, yeah, very much so. And, I mean, we, we, we first encountered him through Hellier. Uh, that's like, correct. With Actually, I, I first encountered him through Penny Royal because I, I was I Penny Royal first. You Penny Royal first, right, okay. Yeah. But I mean, even... Even in Hellier, when he was first mentioned, it, it kind of before before the episode where he actually is interviewed, it, it kind of builds him up. And it, you know, every time they mentioned his name, I sort of got a bit of a feeling like this guy's important. Yeah, I'm I'm watching Hellier again. Um, I, I'm only on my second time through, but I was surprised actually that he's mentioned in the very first episode. Um, and and he's he's constant through that, um, and we'll discuss a little bit why that is um, when we we start talking about the the, the key work that we're going to focus on of his, which is the secret cipher of the euphonauts. Um The other reason that it would be great to have Dr. Alan Greenfield on this podcast would be perhaps he could fill in some details about his background because I've done some research and I've I've not found a great deal about where he's from and, and what he did in his, because he's been on the scene and he's been a um, ufologist for Since years and years. Yeah. I mean, he's been yeah. a ufologist and later a magician, a thelemite, you know, he's a cultist. He's, he's, he's really lived the life, hasn't he? Um, he seems to have. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, he's won awards for his um, contributions to the ufological field. He's been high up in the OTO Um and, and obviously he's released this book, which has become possibly more so recently an essential text. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty mind blowing really. I mean, he, um, he's basically done what a lot of great creative people do, which is bring together two different elements. I think we've just discussed this before, haven't we? In talking about creativity, like one of the sort of big skills in creativity is the originality 
comes from what you combine rather than making something from nothing. It's actually the combination of two things and his combination of, of kind of uh, applying, um, you know, sort of this this ancient Kabbalistic mystical cipher to UFO names, which we'll go into some detail about in a minute. Um, but yeah, that was a pretty inventive idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, going tangential now, I think like that is how human creativity works, I reckon. I think that human creativity combines uh, rather than, I, I think it's very, very rare that someone comes up with something out of the blue that's completely new. And I, I think that probably people like that are what we know as prophets and that sort of thing. Mainly anyone from John Lennon, to Valet, Keel, Greenfield, Picasso. I mean, I, I'm not going to just sit here and list creative people, but um, they're, they're always taking disparate elements of things and fusing them together to make something which is greater than the sum of its parts. And I think that is what the secret cipher of the Euphonauts is. And and I think the, you raise a really good point because the, the two elements of it are very visible, aren't they? Or, or very apparent. Uh, because he talks about what he's done in the book, which is which yeah, is yeah. great. Because he doesn't claim to have invented the cipher. No, he's he's come up with a theory, um, and actually, I mean, I may as well um, read what he says at the beginning of the book. Which is one thing I want this book to do is to demonstrate how, with a little effort and intuitive ability, you can decode the UFO Nort's secret cipher and find your way to the heart of the UFO mystery, and hopefully back again in one piece. That was a great Alan Greenfield impression. <laughs> Bravo. Is, Seven out of ten. Is, yeah. yeah, the accent and everything. <laughs> but that that is what he says um at the beginning um of the book. And 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 that is that's hard to resist, isn't it? Yeah, I mean I think one of the things I like about that approach is you know, even though he was coming from a a, a thelemite sort of uh background, which is all very ritual magic and very kind of you know that whole Crowley influence stuff, where it's secret squirrel. Yeah, it's not something that's accessible to the common man, is it? You know, it's like take take seven weeks off work and fill your house with salt and take a gold, take all the floors up of your house so that yeah, your feet can be on the earth and burn a thousand pounds. Like it, he's basically saying, you can do this. Just you know, get a pen and paper, read this book, and. And I think that that's quite a refreshing approach and it certainly, it probably pissed off quite a few of the people. I know he, he raised a few eyebrows, didn't he? And eventually quit or was fired yeah. from the OTO, OTO. But I think it's quite cool that he kind of came up with quite a democratic thing where he was basically saying, here's a cool magical thing that you can do. It's not just mine, it's ours. And all the way through, he says stuff like, I want you to try this. I want you to give this a go. I want you to, to use yeah. this stuff. And and that brings us on to the, the very little that I know about his background, really. I know he was born in the 40s, so he's younger than Belay and, and, and Keel. Um, he, he was an occultist, a ufologist. He was a member of the OTO, as you said, which is the Ordo Templi Orientis, which is a, th- a Thelemite organization based on the teachings of Aleister Crowley. Um, and he left in about 2006. Um, his, uh, Buckley's waving a, a little sticker of the OTO at me. <laughs> A, I, I don't know. I don't know whether he's joined up as a member since no, I saw him. There's a company that makes really nice reverb pedals called OTO. Ah, there and you I go. had a sticker, and I thought, I'd, but it's not really showing up in the light. Anyway, carry on. 
See, he's the he's the great Barker to my John Keel, <laughs> um, as you were. So, <laughs> so I think he left. I think he left the OTO in around two thousand and six, um, over a disagreement with uh, William Breeze, who's the sovereign patriarch of the liturgical arm of the OTO. I'm not sure on my timelines. I've, I've got to be honest, but I, I I I get the impression that, like you were saying, that he felt it was all too. Um, ritualistic, secret, ceremonial. It comes back to the stuff that Austin Osman Spare was saying uh, about Thelemites and, and Crowley. And, and he was talking more about the Golden Dawn there. Yeah, I think he's uh, Greenfield strikes me as like uh, just a bit of a rebel, isn't he? He's not someone who's told what to do. He sort of... He, he's he's very much his own man and, and I think he, he's, quite, he's quite a free thinker, isn't he? He's quite kind of... Um, he, he reminds me of quite a few of those kind of guys who were probably teenagers in the 60s you know yeah like the counterculture type yeah guys. yeah 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 I, I know what you mean i think that's an interesting way to look at him as a sort of rebel because that is the impression that i got and he doesn't really make any secret of that in in his books either does he you know that that no. or uh, actually interviews as well he, he's talked about in, in interviews about how people tried to discourage him from releasing Secret Cypher, I think, and, and its sequel as well. And there seems to be a lot, there's a lot of people, from what I gather in his interviews, there's a lot of people who really don't like him. Um, who Which a, means he must be doing something right. Yeah, yeah, like Kanye. He's like, <laughs> yeah, the, he's yeah. like the Kanye West of ufology slash the occult. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way to uh, describe him. So if you if you were going to say that uh, The Secret Cypher of the Euphonauts was a particular Kanye West album, which one do you think it would be? I'd say Jesus because it's got it's quite short and stark, but it's quite a yeah. shocking. Like wow, I wasn't expecting it's un- that. Uncompromising, isn't it? It's, it's uncompromising, very uncompromising, but it's uh, anyway. Yeah, I mean, I I really enjoyed that book. That's, so this book's from 1994, um, and I, I think it's one of the most enjoyable sources I've read recently because it's not the easiest to understand, but in it, it's uncompromising nature. Like with Jesus, you know, once you get into the flow of it. Uh, it's like reading an occult artifact. Yeah, I think we should point out at this stage that the the edition that we both read is actually called the complete secret cipher of the Euphonauts, which is what Greenfield encourages people to read now. And it's a, uh, it was, um, I think it was published in 2016, and it's actually a, uh, it's actually two books. It's actually the secret cipher of the Euphonauts and the secret rituals of the Men in Black. They're both. It works better as one book, I think. Like they're both quite short and they just go together nicely uh Heinz holding up a copy of it there just in case I forgot what it looked like um but yeah it's, it's basically the same kind of content so you might as well buy that edition uh I'll link in the show notes I think we need to get an abbreviation for link in the show notes link in the show notes l-i-t-s lits lits I'll lit yeah so so lits but then if you do that if someone only listens to one episode because I don't always listen to podcasts in I'm, order. I'm doing a greenfield. I don't care. Fucking, I'm just going to I'm just yeah. going to make reference to this. Let's. Because that's one of the things that I did enjoy about it. It feels like you're reading an artifact, doesn't it? Because it's, he yeah. references without explaining a, a lot of the things that he's talking about. So he he's often hinting at occult happenings that aren't necessarily secret, but they're obscure, you know. The stuff yeah. that I've I've heard about on podcasts, I'm sure that about half of that book went over my head. Yeah. Uh, because it, it's he's it's obviously so deep in on it. He's got such a knowledge and it it doesn't really go out of his way with footnotes or anything. So it's it's very like there's a lot of presumed knowledge in there. I think it's got a real vibe to it. I think it's got like a real um like you say, like it's an occult artifact. So it's like it's like when you watch like an old documentary. 
um and you know it's very of its time and it's like it, it it's not perfectly written if you see what i mean it's almost got like um it's kind of a bit rough around the edges. But it's conversational, that... I feel, like the style of it, which yeah, is great because yeah. like you were saying when, when when we were talking about it, that you can hear it in his voice. It's, it's written the way he speaks almost. Yeah. And it's... It... A lot of ideas packed into... The den- the idea density is high in that book. Yeah. And it's quite humorous as well, isn't it? You know, and it's but it's it really does feel like you've found something, like you found it in the corner of a a mysterious bookshop, like Ray's Occult Books or the bookshop on Neverending Story, um, and and you've 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 found it, and it's like the secrets in it, you know. This yeah, well, that's something. it. It bridges the gap for me between like I've got two, I've got a couple of shelves on the go at the moment with my books, and one is for occult resources that are information only. Um, and so that's like the books about the Kabbalah. Uh, there's the occult by Colin Wilson on there and that sort of thing. And then another shelf, which is books that you can practice stuff from, you know, so I've got in that condensed chaos and uh, things like high magic by Damien Eccles and stuff. And this book perfectly straddles those two shelves because it's full of information and it's almost an information book, except that it encourages you. And I, I don't think I fully understood how, but it, it, the idea of it is that you can use the cipher to predict these UFO encounters. Yeah, there's a prediction element because I think that that comes back to um, Mothman, doesn't it? I think he he, uh, he he referenced it in that. I think during some of the Mothman things, there there was kind of prediction elements when you put the name from the cipher. Uh, the name from the the encounter into the cipher, it will tell you when the next one's going to happen. Definitely, yeah. Um, and like you say, it's written with humour. It's at the same time, it's reverent. It's written with reverence and irreverence at the same time, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's respectful to its source, but it's it's got this wry humour that runs through it, which makes it a pleasurable read. I think. So with Greenfield kind of we should maybe talk about how how it works like the the kind of the mechanism yeah. of it. So it's based on the idea that there's a hidden cipher in the book of the law by Alistair Crowley. I say by Alistair Crowley that book is a channeled book. Do you want to give some of the background of that book? Or? Yeah, so he supposedly, obviously with Crowley, you've got to take everything he says with a pinch of salt, but um, there's probably some truth in some of it and it's hard to know. Again, trickster type dude, weird sense of humour, um, said things that went over a lot of people's heads. Anyway, enough about Crowley. So he he apparently he he apparently channeled this book during a magical working he did in Egypt um, and he channeled a an entity called Iwas... And so Iwas apparently dictated it to him and he wrote it out. So he doesn't claim authorship of it. No, I mean, he he talks about basically this entity manifesting over his shoulder and almost being visible. Yeah. And he wrote the whole thing in three hours, an hour a day, between certain times 
um, it sort of earlyish April, um, just over three days, and I think there's quite a lot of evidence that what he's saying there isn't completely true. That there's a, yeah. a book by Richard T. Cole called Libra El Vel Bogus. Um, and uh, I haven't actually read it, but I've listened to a few interviews with him. Um, and there's a great episode of What Magic Is This? Lits. And um, we they basically discuss how his story didn't check out at all. Yeah. To the point where the museum that he and his wife visited the beginning of this encounter wasn't even open on the date that he said that he went there, all this sort of stuff. It's really, it's, and um, Richard T. Cole, he's a British guy. He's a Northern guy. He's an entertaining listen. So I would recommend that you listen to that. That doesn't matter because like we just discussed with the, uh, in the last episode with the Mothman prophecies, it isn't about how you get there so much. You know, sometimes yeah. the phenomena perhaps takes a little push in the right direction with something that might be not quite as it seems. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, a, it's interesting because uh, Visconti was on about that, Marco Visconti in the um, in the Spirit Box podcast I mentioned in the last episode, he was saying that like, I don't think he believes everything that Crowley wrote either um, and claimed. And yet he's a Thelemite and he's very much, you know, his life is, pretty much dedicated to uh, the book of the law. And yet he still acknowledges it as not being an entirely reliable source. But again, it like you say, it kind of doesn't matter because it's the, it's the journey that matters. It's not the destination. It's not the start. It's the journey. And it's what happens to you along that journey. It reminds me of like a catalyst. Yeah, you know, uh, something that gets the reaction going, which in itself is inert. You know, so on its own, it's not a lot, but you add it to whatever process is going on, and it pushes it. There's, it's discussed, and I can't think of a specific episode, but it's discussed in a few episodes of What Magic Is This? How um, a little bit of theatre and a little bit of mythology can help to get things going, and yeah. you can take that through to things like the Philip experiment, which yeah, yeah. they knew that this entity Philip wasn't real. Um, and and yet, you know, you get results anyway. Yeah, it's like uh, a visualization, isn't it? And it's it's. I think it's true with with a lot of things. It's you know, it's fake it till you make it. It's it's Oscar Wilde. Mm. You know, the secret to becoming a star is to learn how to behave like one. Also, so much of of uh, I think magic and the occult is based on stories that the stories become a kind of language. Yeah. So you know, you have to start that story somewhere. You can't necessarily, you know, if, if let's like say almost like the fake it, if you make it, you know, if, if nothing's happening right now, just start the story. And I think, going. I think one of the interesting things with Crowley that often comes up is that um, during another one of his workings, he apparently had uh, communication with um, what was described by Kenneth Grant as an extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, he had kind of a, an astral contact with it, and this this intelligence was called Lamb. Um, so Lamb's an interesting one in terms of what we're looking at, because Lamb Crowley did a painting of Lamb, and it looks exactly like a grey alien. Uh, I think you can probably link to it in the show notes. But Litz, Litz. Um, so this picture of Lamb that he did, it was first exhibited to the public in I think it was like 1919 or something in New York, and Bear in mind, 1919, this is, what, like 28 years before the first 
classic grey alien imagery, UFO imagery, alien imagery came about, you know, in the in the way that we know it now. And, A long time before Stryber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um it was it was kind of a uh, it was actually used on the cover of we mentioned it before um HP Blavatsky who I need to read actually because she seems to pop up everywhere as well as being like this kind of proto crowley you know kind of he didn't he borrow a few things from her yeah i think so and and um anyway this this picture he did of lamb um the reason i mention him now is that so apparently uh Kenneth Grant claims that when um because Kenneth Grant owned owned this picture, it was given to him by Crowley. Crowley said, "Pick a picture from my collection, uh, and you can have it." And so he picked this one of what looks like a grey alien, and Crowley said, "Ah, I was." Uh, and so, did Crowley was I was and Lamb the same person? We don't know. Again, well, I, did I should, he forget which lie he was telling? Yeah, I should credit Visconti for this because again, he mentioned this in the in the uh, the podcast I just listened to, so it's very much in my mind. But I, I think we've kind of lost our train of thought, haven't we? We've moved away from Greenfield. We need to- yeah. So we're talking about the book of book the law. Of the law yeah. Yeah. So, so the the book the book of the law um, was dictated by this entity over uh, allegedly over a short period of time, um, as we've said. Is that true? Doesn't matter. What matters is that in there, there's multiple references within the book, within the te- its own text, about a cipher which exists and which will be cracked, but not by Crowley. It, yeah. it, Crowley is it's very, very explicit that Crowley will not himself crack the cipher. I reckon that was just him being lazy. <laughs> yeah, somebody I else will, figure it out. explicitly mentioned that I will not do the washing up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like, and if this doesn't quite make sense, then that's because it's a code which I will not crack for you. <laughs> Convenient. But, um, so um, anyway, within it, there's a, of the handwritten text, there's a diagram which shows a grid uh, with, um, and a sort of circle and a cross. Um, and eventually um, after, I mean, it was getting on, I mean, it must have been around 50 years-ish, they they cracked it. Yeah. Uh, it's specifically, it was someone called James Lees, who's a northern lad. He's from Bolton, um, yeah, which was part of Lancashire. Uh, yeah. Do you know, I had it written down that it was Carol Smith. There's been people, other people who've worked on it. Right, okay. Um, apparently. Um, but the English Kabbalah being that that sort of grid and the, the number of associations... Um, I think it was James Lee's, but, um, you know, you can't tell with all this stuff because basically, according to what I read up about it, that was, um, he, he cracked the code in about 76. Yeah. It wasn't published until about 79 when Ray Sherwin, the chaos magician published it. Right. Um, and basically it's a simple device i may be able to find a picture of it to link to in the show notes um but basically the simplest way to visualize it is a well first of all i mean you um start at a give a the value of one so it's a numerical value attributed to a and then you move on 11 letters um so that's an l and that's your number two and then you move on another 11 letters to w and it works in a circle doesn't it then it loops back round. So then you so W, X, Y, Z, then back to A. You go through 11 
um, and that takes you to H and that's number four. And that's how it works. You can see it much more clearly than how I've just described it in a grid, which is um, a, a, a grid. I think it's in rows of nine and you draw lines across it, which show you the figures. Um, and uh, there's also great visualizations in, in stars. In the book, Greenfield calls this Cypher 6. Um, and uh, star six and cycle 11 he uses a few different ways to describe it but i think if we just call it the english Kabbalah, i think that's probably the the best way to describe it so that given we'd said one is a two is l three is w um, and that of course is an anagram of law so there you have it one two three um so then what you you go through the whole of the alphabet until each letter is attributed numerical value um, and then basically the way that greenfield describes it is you choose an interesting word and then you use that word to um each letter of that word is, is given a letter value you add those letters up and that gives you the cipher value for that word and then basically you, you match that cipher value to other words or short phrases within the book of the law that also have that cipher value yeah, there's actually um, there's actually a handy app uh, app website which does it all for you, so you don't have to have your pen and paper, which we will link in the show notes, um, where you can just type in uh, the word, and it gives you the results. So, just as an example, if I was to type vase into here, which is an interesting word, and it comes up with 32 different results. One so, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt. So base has a cipher value of 56. Yeah. So just keep that in mind for the moment. Yeah. Um, and um, some of the, some of the words, the phrases that come up are, um, let me look for you an interesting wise. one. Yeah. You get weigh in. Wings. You also get fear. Beds. So you've got to kind Hard of use your low. intuition. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so what he's saying is use your intuition. So obviously, I like the idea of wise and weigh in being associated with vase because you know that, that feels like what we're doing. But also fear, although it's a more negative one, it also does make sense. Um, something that's interesting with vase is that it's got a cipher value of fifty six. Um, now, fifty six um, is also a significant number because it's a five plus a six. Isis. Um, as in the god Isis, has a value of 56 as well. Um, so you add 5 and 6 together, that gives 11, um, which is the number of magic of transformation by will and of decoding, according to Greenfield. Um, and there's some quotes that he gives. Um, it says, It is not he, the adept, that shall rise in the sign of Isis rejoicing. So there's your 56 again. Um, and the transformed adept, greater than the most advanced aliens is the ultimate victor of the battle of conquest, not merely earth, but the omniverse is his domain. So that's a little nice. quote that Greenfield gave about things that have the cipher value 56. So that's interesting because vase was a word that came out of a dream as well. Yeah. And I mean, like the, the way that Greenfield approached it initially was to put in, you know, the reason he calls it the secret cipher of the euphonauts is that he put in these unusual names that came from UFO contact. So we spoke um we spoke in the previous episode about the odd names that were that keel experienced things like injured cold or apple or whatever and um 
he put those into it and got some very interesting and significant results. And yeah. that kind of led to the conclusion that, you know, the whole thing with Crowley and whatever he was doing and whatever entities he was contacting had a link to the UFO contact and that sort of sealed it. And that I suppose is why, um, it's taken us a long way to say it, but uh, a long time to say it, but, uh, that is why it's relevant to the ultra terrestrial theory is because yeah. it's linking up these sort of magical beings that, uh, that, that, that previously weren't seen as being the same thing as UFOs, um, that came from magical workings, uh, as being, you know, the, the the same thing, part of the same thing. Yeah, yeah, and obviously linking it to Crowley and the occult directly as well. So it's a direct link there between the UFO phenomena and manifestation of spirits through magic. So, like an example would be Orthon, which is one of George Adamski's contacts, uh, and uh, it's an entity that is supposedly. Um, you know, as qualities of being like a sort of handsome, long-haired man and so on, all these various qualities that gives Orthon gives a cipher value of 68. And if you look at Liber Al, the book of the law, um, Jesus also has a, a cipher value of 68. So yeah. then, you know, obviously there's some connection there between Orthon and Jesus. They have similar qualities. Uh, Indrid Cold, you mentioned. Um, Indrid Cold... Um, who is um, an entity which is mentioned in the Mothman prophecies? Um, Woodrow. Um, Woodrow Beringer. Deringer. Yes. Deringer, not Beringer. Deringer. Woodrow Deringer. Um, so, um, and th that one is actually important to Hellier, isn't it? Because that gives a cipher value of 112, 112, which is the ink and the black. Um, and that, that was comes mentioned. up. That was one of the the. It was like a photo that was attached to one of the emails in Helia, wasn't it? So that kind of links. That basically linked uh, Greenfield to the Helia uh, mythology mythology yeah, situation. By, yeah, um, and and the Ink and the Blacks mentioned explicitly in an interview at the end of the Secret Cipher with Terry R. Wrist. Terry R. Wrist was someone who emailed. Greg Newkirk. Yeah, so hell yeah. Like, I mean, w without going into too much depth, because we'll do it properly in an episode, but the, the hell yeah starts off with the sort of protagonist, if you like, uh, Greg receiving an email from a guy called David Christie, um, and then nothing happens for a while, and then he gets some other emails from a guy called Terry Wrist, uh, and... Uh, they recognise the name in Helia because Terry Rist is mentioned in an interview in the back of Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. There's an appendix and it has an interview with an interesting guy called Terry Rist. But who is Terry Rist? That's my question to you. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's an interesting one. Um, I I don't know. The, the answer is I don't know. So he's presented as almost like a source or a contact of Greenfields yeah. who has been working as part of a task force, I think, sort of out of Vietnam or Vietnam vets. I think it started in Vietnam, didn't he? He, saw yeah. all, he went in the tunnels and saw all these like little goblin creatures and shot them yes. all. And then and then he, he comes back to America and does it does the same thing. 
And he so seems basically, to be- he's hunting out mysterious little bastards in caves. So um, he, he's he's also into the cipher, and, and they discuss the cipher amongst themselves in the interview, don't they? Um, and then, in se- spoiler alert, but in series of two, in series of two, in series two of Hellia, they use those bits of the interview with Terry Reese where he discusses the cipher to hunt down the place where Terry Wrist claims to have met Indrid Cold. So it kind of comes full circle. It's very interesting. So, yeah, the Terry Wrist thing is a little bit suspicious because I just get a feeling that it might be Greenfield. I don't know. It's, it's, just... hard, it's hard to say. Or I, I, I wonder if it's some sort of entity that he's contacted. But Greenfield says in interviews and in Hellier that he's that this guy is just a you know an ex-army vet and there is someone in hellier who claims to have met him as well now the, the descriptions vary slightly the 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 interesting thing is that terry wrist only really exists in secret cipher for the euphonauts or the, or the complete cipher because he's interviewed in the second book as well isn't he? yeah he is yeah and and in hellier there's very little about him or there was until hellier there was very little more about him out in the world but I mean, that's because I guess if you're hunting out aliens in caves, you don't just give interviews to just anyone. Yeah, I mean, he's not going to be on Facebook, is he? If he's some kind of like libertarian gun freak, you know, he's going to be alien hunter, basically. Yeah, but I don't know. It just it, if you think about the result of the Terry Wrist emails, like, okay, so the first email was David Christie, but then after that, you know. The, the, it, I don't know. It's really, it's really hard to tell, and we, we, it's sometimes okay to just say you don't know. Um, I think that's it. I, th- I think it's just part of the mystery, and, and mystery isn't a bad thing, as as we've discussed. Um, let, the, let the mystery be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it's that's how the book can be used, and Terry Reese is obviously interviewed as an example of how people can use the cipher to actually find aliens because i think that's the subtext isn't it or or, or just the explicit text of it that he's using the cipher to find aliens yeah to Um, find out where they're going to be and stuff yeah um using it it seems to me it feels like a synchronicity generator doesn't it you know it feels almost like divination like the i ching or something doesn't it you know yeah it's got that it's got that to it and i think also kind of it is implied isn't it that that with a number of things like this that once you start looking into it and doing these things, whether it be using the the itching or whether it be, um, you know, kind of doing any kind of vaguely magical or esoteric work, that things will start to happen because you're kind of creating ripples, so to speak. Yeah, definitely. Um, and like, it's like almost Greenfield is, you, you could argue that the secret cipher is a kind of working in itself because it's encouraged like him encouraging people to engage engage in it is actually i've I've only just this thought has only just come to me now um but him him encouraging people to engage in it is actually kind of making more things happen and the ripples spread out into the world that seems to be that's sort of my understanding of it in the in my kind of newly developing cosmology post vase
should we maybe have a look at Parsons briefly? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So whilst whilst we're on the uh, the topic of, because I think what we've done is we've looked at um, Valet and Keel, and then looking at Greenfield as as coming at it, bringing in the kind of occult angle. And um, we've mentioned Crowley, which is obviously important for that. But then there's another guy that we should maybe touch upon briefly, who is the fascinating Jack Parsons. Yeah. Um, and I first I first encountered him. Oh God, I don't remember when it was. It was probably about fifteen years ago. Um, I read this book called Sex and Rockets about Jack Parsons, and that is a fantastic book. It's uh, it was written by a guy called John Carter, and it basically describes all of Parsons' weird life. And he was this guy who was like this scientist who um he was he he was like responsible for rocket fuel wasn't he he was the guy who was yeah. in the jet propulsion um laboratory he founded the jet propulsion laboratory basically and- i th- i think i mean he was born in 1914 and he started experimenting with rockets like in the in the late 1920s so that's like nearly a century ago yeah and back then there was no rocket science it just didn't exist. I mean, he was, it, it was fringe what he was doing, even even in scientific terms, what he was doing was fringe. And he was born uh, on the 2nd of October 1914, which interestingly is the day when the Jehovah's Witnesses believed that the world would end. Ah, that Up is until that point. Yeah, so he had, he had like all this like, um, I mean, obviously he founded this jet propulsion laboratory, but which still to this day contributes to the space program. He was also... It sounded like he liked explosions as well. I think he, he liked it. to blow stuff up. That was how he died. He died with yeah. an explosion. But he, he allegedly. I mean, he's got the dude has got like a, a crater on the moon named after him. But yeah, but he was also uh, a thelemite and a ritual magician. So he was also hanging out with Crowley and and his lads. And so, yeah, I mean, he's got loads of connections to to weird stuff. So I mean, obviously, he was, he was a. a an occultist who was a, a Thelmite. Um, he also, he was in touch with Werner von Braun yeah. before Werner von Braun was who he became, you know. So he's, there's that conspiracy edge of the paperclip stuff as well. Yeah. But he, 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 he was in, into that stuff. Um, he, he was he was also, I think, by all accounts, a bit of a bastard, um, yeah. as a lot of these people are. Uh, but he was definitely a genius. Um, and I, I, I think he was, in a large part, self-educated, um, you know, I think it definitely in terms of the rocket science stuff. Um, and he, um, I, I mean, he, he was deeply into the occult, wasn't yeah. he? I mean, he, this wasn't just a passing fascination or, or a sort of a little bit of spiritual thing. I mean, he was steeped in it. Yeah. And I, I get the impression from, from what I've read, it's been a while since I read, uh, sex and rockets, but I've kind of brushed up on it a little bit and he was really into it, but he was also maybe slightly naive in some ways. And I think that's, that's certainly how Crowley saw him. And I think Crowley was kind of a bit dismissive of him after a while. Um, he kind of thought he didn't really know what he was doing and he was a bit naive. He became a bit of a superstar, didn't he? Yeah, um, he was like a he was like a rock star. He was like he, he was like really good looking, and he had all these parties. He had a house called the Parsonage, which is fantastic. Yeah, and he, like he had <laughs> he had all these like he had all these like nineteen uh, seventies nineteen seventies uh, no uh, 
earlier. It, all this like people like um his thirties and forties, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, was... L. Ron Hubbard and Robert Heinlein and Ray Bradbury. You know, they'd all, they'd all be coming to his house and partying, and he'd have these parties where he'd he'd have like a big bonfire and he'd be chanting um, yeah. Crowley's pan invocation and stuff like that. He, well, basically, yeah. I mean, he he did the pan invocation before every rocket launch, didn't he? Yeah. He 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 was. He was into these rockets when they were fringe, and then basically time caught up with him. So, yeah, the military got interested. As soon as the military got interested, he was rich, um, you know, and and he and and then he became Jack Parsons, like you say, the, the rocket rock star, yeah. you know, and 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 he and I mean, he as far as the counterculture was back then, he was on the forefront of the counterculture. You know, he was doing these sex magic parties. Um, he was married um, and he went off with his wife's 17 year old sister. Um, and his wife didn't really mind. She went off with someone high up in the Thelmite organization that he was part of. Um, uh, he, he became mates with Elron Hubbard. Uh, Elron Hubbard stole his 17 year old mistress. Um, then Elvon Hubbard stole his money to buy some yachts. And then he and Elvon Hubbard went out into the desert and did some sort of crazy ritual. Yeah. It's mad. I mean, like the, the, the like I said, I read Sex and Rockets like 15 years ago. So I just couldn't believe it was true. It was one of those things, sort of stranger than fiction situations where you just, uh, like Mothman, really, where you just feel like you're almost not, it's like, this can't be true. Like, it's, The thing is, like, I feel like, I know that we're not going to do an episode on Parsons. I I, I don't know enough about him and that it, it would probably be just recounting other people's research. But I think there's probably somewhere in there um, some sort of episode because something that I've been looking into this week is how many prominent scientists, mathematicians are also occultists. Yeah. Um, and so obviously going back years and years, you've got Pythagoras who even for the time was steeped in mysticism, you know, at a time when there wasn't really any distinction between science and, and magic and stuff. He was a cult leader and he had all these like very like specific beliefs and stuff, but obviously his formula is still used today. Yeah. They're irrefutable. Um, you had, we mentioned it earlier, Fazio Cardano and his son, Jerome Cardano. Uh, he was a, a mathematician and scientist, very prominent at the time. They're obviously intelligent people. Um, Paraclesis, uh, who we mentioned earlier, you know, he, he was a pioneer of medical, of the medical revolution of the Renaissance. Isaac Newton was a notorious, um, alchemist you know like like very very into that side of stuff jack parsons yeah uh, who we, we obviously we're talking about right now um jacques valet invented the internet you know and, and he was very much into this ufo stuff uh, i was listening to a really good episode of um the podcast stuff they don't want you to know which i'll link to in the show notes um where they compared parsons basically uh, to the tech bros in Silicon Valley of today, you know, because he had, he was obviously a genius. He had money and he had power and he was almost above the, not quite above the law, but like he, he, he was like living on a different level, you know, and it does make you wonder what these tech bros are up to these days, you know, and what they're, what, what they're doing, uh, you know, what their weird beliefs are, you know, because they obviously have enough money to do whatever they want, you know, and they're there sort of microdosing the secret truth of the universe. Yeah. You know, I, I, and I, I think that would be an interesting thing. Um, you know, like I'm not going to look into it, but someone should look into it. Yeah. The whole like, NFTs thing, like what are they up to? <laughs> yeah, but there's got to be some of the. I mean, I, there's got to be some of those guys in in Silicon Valley who who are who are into the um, 
who, who are into the occult. I, I, I don't believe there isn't. So the the reason we bring Parsons into this is not just because he was fascinating, but because he one of the rituals that he did um, in 1946 with L. Ron Hubbard was known as the Babylon Working. And there are some people who believe that that brought about the era of ufology um, because after that, supposedly the first UFOs were seen. Now, we've already discussed how um, UFOs were seen before that. You've got the airships, you've got the... So it's a bit of a a puzzling one, really, because, um, you know, you've got people who are acknowledging the ultra-terrestrial theory whilst also saying that Parsons uh, brought this about. So it's a tricky one. I mean, because I know that there's there's also theories that um, it was the the atom bomb that brought it about. Uh, like in Twin Peaks. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, Mark Frost's uh, input into uh, the Twin Peaks mythos in particular, the... Um, the secret history of Twin Peaks, which came out before Twin Peaks: The Return, um, goes into that a lot. Um, of you know, it mentions Parsons, the atom bomb, Crowley, Lamb, all of this stuff uh, is all in there. I mean, th- you can go as deep as you want into the Parsons rabbit hole. That there's loads of stuff linking him to CERN. Like apparently, there's someone called Jack Parsons who works at CERN, and someone called Crowley Crowley who works at Crowley Crowley who works at CERN and I mean like there's some real heavy um, conspiracy stuff about him but what you were saying about the Babylon working like from what I read he was disillusioned after losing his 17 year old mistress so he went to the desert with the person who stole his mistress to summon the whore of Babylon yeah it Um, was well I think it was like the it was the idea of the divine feminine um, and it was bringing about the the new it was to bring about the new aeon um, Basically, yeah, he had a bit of a thing about birthing an antichrist, didn't he? He wanted a moon child. Yeah, um, yeah. And and, and um, he thought the person to do that with was the Whore of Babylon. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure she was the Whore of Babylon, but she was called she was called Marjorie Cameron, and she just sort of rocked up at the parsonage, and she had red red hair and green eyes, so they assumed that she was like, you know, must have been a bit mystical or whatever. But um, and they did. They basically did a, a bunch of sex magic ceremonies with her, Parsons, and Elron Hubbard. Um, and then Parsons actually went out alone after that into the desert to invoke Babylon. Um, and that's where he received a transmission, supposedly, similar to, to his his uh, his pal Crowley, which became his book Liber 49, which he considered to be another chapter of the Book of the Law. But he, it's interesting because he... Marjorie Cameron supposedly turned up after the, the Babylon working started, but she didn't actually conceive a child. No, then but it, then then there's the the, the weird um, the, 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 there's there's some weird stuff. I mean, um, Michael Hoffman, who's another notorious shit, um, he's mentioned in Penny Royal, isn't he? Um, yeah, um, he's a a real piece of work. A, uh, Holocaust denier and all the rest of it. So he's already not the most reliable of sources. But apparently he um, either has a theory or claims to have evidence. And again, he, I, I don't believe this for a second, but what he says is that after that heavy period of sex magic that 
Parsons and Cameron undertook, she did conceive a child and they had an abortion. Right. And this is the this is the weird bit. They gave the remains of the abortion to the US government. Oh, of course. Yeah. So, it, it, like I said, you can go as deep as you want into these weird conspiracy rabbit holes. It's I probably, don't think it holds it's probably sat, sat there in a drawer with the pancake. <laughs> yeah, like in um, like in of the Lost Ark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is it? Top men on the case. Top men. But, I mean, th- th- there's. Um, I, I think there's just a lot of bullshit about this. Um, but what's interesting is that they never really finished the Babylon working, did they? Which is what, because obviously 1946, they do this. What was it 47 Kenneth Arnold, 47 Roswell? Yeah. And then, then there's a flap all the way through, you know, the 40s, 50s and 60s. I know like Kenneth Grant has written, who was Crowley's kind of secretary and who carried on his work after his death. He He specifically said that Parsons opened a door and something flew in and stuff like that. But... I'm not sure. I think that it's maybe... So the way I see it is, and I know that I'm no expert, that this is just, again, my gut feeling, is that perhaps something happened, but it's not as uh, linear and as straightforward as um, just that Parsons did this working and aliens came. I I think it's probably... So, uh, again, back to Kenneth Grant, he talks about this thing called tangent the idea of tangent I can't say it tangential magic and the idea of um that whenever a person does a form of magical working whether it be a, a high-end ritual like Parsons and Hubbard did or whether it just be as simple as you know doing a little bit of sigil magic or even just uh you know reading a horoscope anything you know any any time a person engages with that current there are ripples that spread outwards and things happen in ways which you don't necessarily expect and um so you know the and and i think there's there's a lot of cases of this where people go out looking for ufos and they end up seeing bigfoot and so if we take this idea of the phenomenon as being a whole thing uh, which is all interrelated and it's almost like a pool and you drop a stone in and by doing a ritual or you know doing anything related to that and the ripples come out but you don't know because of its kind of chaotic nature you don't know what's going to come back at you from that is it it might be what you want it might be something completely different and it's it's almost like the butterfly effect in the magical realm kind of thing uh so to speak yeah. and my feeling is that i don't doubt i mean it's similar to the whole thing with crowley i don't doubt that shit happened and things happened that are outside of what science can explain uh that could be called magic or contacting entities but i don't necessarily think it's exactly what they say it was i think that it's not necessarily as cut and dry as that no i mean i, I think that obviously to say that the Babylon working or that lamb or whatever opened the door to all these entities and phenomena would be to discount the work of valet and keel wouldn't it you know like like there's got to be i mean you don't know i mean valet himself talks about entities not responding to time in a linear way so you know perhaps ripples from that went backwards in time as well as forwards and there's that sort of thing but then i imagine people have been summoning this stuff 
throughout history, haven't they? I mean, I don't think Parsons invented the Babylon working necessarily. You know, it will be all stuff that's come, you know, people have been doing these rituals. Yeah. Oh, no, he was using um, Enochian magic back from yeah. John D. So there's, there's D again that we mentioned in the last episode. Sweet um, D. <laughs> sweet John D. Um, and, and so th- there's, um, I mean, what's interesting, I think, about Parsons as well is just on the surface of it, he, he was literally on the, summoning entities and phenomenon whilst also building nuts and bolts spacecraft you know he was on both sides of it you know like and and that's really interesting as well plus the fact that all this technology i mean for ages there was a literal cover-up where they discounted the work of parsons he's he's more famous and well known now but for years they tried to erase his contribution uh because of his weird beliefs because after he'd, he'd had this period of success you know and the war had come and gone um, you got into the late forties. There was the Cold War. He had connections, obviously, from his counterculture days to, uh, or suspected connections to so- um, socialism and communism. Yeah. Um, and and there was the, um, you know, the uh, the U.S. government basically made him penniless, and they, they took him off the payroll. Um, he ended up. Um, I think he worked in movie special effects, didn't he? I think that was yeah. He, he had he, he had some yeah. kind of far less high paid job, and he had to. I think the the parsonage was like like bulldozed, crank shame. Yeah, I know the parsonage. We should we should make a parsonage. Yeah, I think we're kind of a bit too established in our like comfortable lives to make a parsonage. Parsons as well is a connection to Hellier, isn't it? Which we'll, we'll Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That was about. actually I remember thinking that when I was watching it. Just like another thing that from going back to the whole kind of late nineteen forties thing, um there was also around that time, um I'll pronounce it wrong, but there was the the Nag Hammadi texts, which were some ancient Gnostic texts relating to the divine feminine. Relating to this same concept that that uh, the Babylon working was trying to bring about, and these Gnostic texts were discovered in like a cave somewhere, I've forgotten where. Uh, but our friend Philip K. Dick linked these to his uh, Vallis experience, okay, which is another um, another link to you know the the whole idea of an ultra dimensional entity and the whole idea of there being other layers, other frequencies, you know, the whole Dick had this idea that there was a, almost like a world overlaid on top of ours. And which is a bit of the, like the eighth tower that you mentioned last episode, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. I I find it, I find it difficult to unravel Philip K. Dick. I think he was already pretty unraveled to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just, I, I can't work out, how he fits into it all. Although obviously a lot of his beliefs fit in exactly with this stuff. Yeah. He was so messed up, wasn't he? Um, and, and, and obviously he was a fiction writer as well. I mean, cause even Vallis was an actual experience, but it was also a book, wasn't it? And it's difficult to tell which is which and what's real and what's fantasy. Yeah. Fiction. And apparently sort of a lot of elements of his stuff were kind of channeled in a way. And, you know, that, like you say, the lines, yeah. the lines are blurred with, with Dick, but it would be interesting to do some kind of divination based on that as a channeled text, you know, or even you... put some of the names into the secret cipher. Yeah, um, yeah. I read a great um, biography of, of 
Philip K. Dick. I think it was called I'm Alive and You're Dead or something like that. I'll, I'll, I'll link, if I can find it, I'll link it in the show notes. But, um, that, that, that presents his life as a Philip K. Dick novel. Um, right, so it's okay. quite interesting, but it's got all that stuff because he saw entities, you know, and, and some robot reached down from the sky and grabbed him at some point as well. And th- th- he had loads of weird experience with what could be ultra-terrestrials, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I think he's he's always relevant. He's one of those who always comes up, isn't he? Like, and, yeah. and again, kind of, I mentioned that I've been reading uh, Cosmic Trigger and like, Cosmic Trigger basically mentions all this stuff, like all these guys are mentioned in it. And um, it's like that, you know, he's like, oh yeah, I know Philip K. Dick, I, you know, chatted with him a few times. <laughs> you know, it's it. just like, all these great 70s guys were just hanging out and, you know, yeah, it must have been a great time ha- and a terrible time, but um, but Parsons never got that far, did he? No, he didn't um, reach the seventies. He died young and beautiful. Yeah, he he was. I think he was like thirty-seven or something ridiculous. Yeah, he wasn't. He blew he himself up with a, um, a delivery of some sort of explosive for a, a movie pyrotechnic he was working on. There are theories, of course, because when they found the dying man uh, in Parsons' laboratory, he didn't he didn't have his face. He was he was blown up that much um yeah. and so you know did he really die and so on but i think or he did he did. or did he did he change his name to terry wrist <laughs> yeah so i mean there's, there's i mean really you can look into um i mean I, I, would, I would encourage people to look into parsons i mean you can go as deep into that as you want to but i think um a good source for looking at um the kind of occult links to ufology is a book i've mentioned in a previous episode um or maybe a future episode that we recorded earlier than this one which i think is the case. non-linear time exactly nlt um is uh alistair crowley and the aeon of horus by paul weston um he he goes into some really good detail about all that stuff and it would be good to have him on the podcast as well because i'd love to just sit and listen to him for hours because he's great um but yeah, yeah that's he's got a, some great ideas western yeah it's a great book um i've just finished reading it and it's um it's got some great links between all this stuff like making all these kind of different connections but i'm not sure i believe all of it uh like i said I've, i'm not entirely bu- sold on the idea of uh the the crowley um and parsons brought about the ufos because i'm more in the valet camp but I'm happy to be proven wrong, as is often the case. Yeah, it's like we've said before, you've got to be a bit mouldy, you've got to be a bit scully, choose what you want to believe. and, uh, and Worse um, to live by. You've yeah. maybe also got to be a bit skinner. Yeah, I think I think you do, and, and maybe Just like... A, like look a after bit. yourself, like be a bit removed <laughs> from it, you know, sort yeah. of, but then when the going gets tough... Make he definitely brave looks after himself Skinner, doesn't he? Oh, he does. There's that episode he's where he's like, "He's a beautiful man." Oh, he's he's a wonderful. Yeah. There's that episode where he's like in a. Is it like they're making? It goes really meta. They're like making a Hollywood film about the X Files, and Skinner's like in a bubble bath, just like having a great time. It's, there, uh, there's that episode, um, and I can't remember the name of it. Um, when, when there's someone writing a book like Keel, isn't there? Um, is it Jose Young's? Uh, yeah, from out of space. Called, yeah, yeah. The, 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 there's a um, the, there's characters in that called Valet, isn't there? And um, and I think Heineck as well. Uh, uh, so, so yeah, they, they they knew what they were doing. The X Files.
talking of Parsons um, and his contribution to the exploration of space I think we could just talk briefly about the nuts and bolts theory again because after everything we've said and the fact that we're both recent converts to the ultra-terrestrial hypothesis that conversion came at an inopportune moment because there was a triumph for nuts and bolts believers over the last couple of years isn't there um basically uh, the US government uh, the Pentagon came out and said yeah all right UFOs are real we see them all the time we don't know what they are but they're uh, bad and-, and we need to stockpile loads of weapons <laughs> yeah and put I- and and, and 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 it's interesting because it came it, it's something that I, i'd wanted for ages you know um that that sort of admission and it came at a time when i i really wasn't invested in the nuts and bolts theory um but they've come out they, they've had congressional hearings about it they've had uh you know there've been open hearings as well uh, of, of, there's obviously been closed door ones um and where where they they've shown footage of them uh, they said you know we, we don't know what this is this is there's they they've they've put in new procedures for um pilots of the military to, um, and uh, civilians as well to report their sightings and so on my theory on that is that this is a purely nuts and bolts thing it doesn't sound like they're looking into the ultra terrestrial stuff at all so no. they're not after the pancakes they're after the um what i think is probably some sort of um foreign nation technology or something like that um, yeah I, I i don't think it's very likely from what they've got and what they've said that they are aliens I don't think they even care what it is. I think all they care about is the military industrial complex. It's like it's just another Afghanistan, it's just another Iraq, you know. Well, this is interesting because all this came about from um I mean it really kicked off in about 2020, didn't it? Obviously when when they, they needed something to be in the news cycle, uh something other than COVID, but um there, there's there was um the involvement here of the to the stars um you know uh, that's what they called now isn't it it used to be the to the scars uh, academy of arts and science which is that we mentioned it in the last episode it, it's a company a private leone company that was started by tom delong from blink 182 um in his new career as a i don't know what i don't know what he'd be now i mean a, a ufo it's it's tangential, isn't it? Because he's Pasta still boy. very much he's very yeah he's very much in the entertainment industry still, isn't he? And actually, um, you know, um, I mean, there's people like the Lou Elizondo who um, joined to the stars and helped get out this whole um, you know the footage of the uh, military UFO sightings and so on, um, and then not long afterwards, late 2020, left to the stars. Uh, completely, you know, um, because, you know, for whatever reason, because, I mean, the official line is that it was going too much towards entertainment and there was nothing for the actual, uh, you know, the, the ones who were on the scientific side. It was more arts than science, basically, I think is what happened yeah. there. Yeah. Um, and and um, there's a few reasons why I'm cynical of it. Uh, firstly, of course, 
it's a completely private interest. You know, they, they've 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 pushed and pushed. He he had enough money and enough backing, Tom DeLong, to get people on board. Um, you know, who'd who'd worked in the Pentagon or who'd worked, uh, you know, for in American intelligence, um, who could who could who had some push, had some sway, could get things out, and then basically the company's become much more entertainment based, and it's all about the books and the documentaries and the films and the and Benjamins. The Exactly. Um, and so basically, yes, the government has admitted that UFOs exist. Uh, but yes, it was in the interest of private companies, powerful private companies to have UFOs pushed out there into the public consciousness again. But then no, I don't think the American government, as stupid as they appear sometimes, do anything by accident. So my my personal pet theory about it is that to the stars are we used as useful idiots yeah. to get the information out there to distract like you say you know to, to to increase the the spending um on the um military industrial uh complex um to 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 i mean a, a time before russia had invaded the ukraine and so on um that they needed a um, an external enemy uh, or, or something or some external threat in order to invest more in security in the military and all that kind of thing i think um a couple of points that i I agree with you totally um just a couple of points that i want to raise firstly if you put blink 182 into the cipher one of the results is a god of war and of vengeance wow exactly so let's just bear that in mind before we diss delong anymore so on a more serious note i think the thing is with the nuts and bolts stuff is that there are nuts and bolts elements to there are kind of physical elements to the uh encounters that happen you know there are burn marks on the ground there are um items that people are given pancakes pancakes which always turn out to be earthly uh, terrestrial yeah, yeah. it's like and, when people find the bits of metal and they turn out to be tinfoil or something yeah but, but like when they, when they found there was something else now i think some of the time that's just people lying but other times i think that there is that element that we talked about last episode where you're given gold but it turns to coal yeah and i think the trickster um, element i think it's like um it's important to not um you know to someone who was uh cynical of the ultra terrestrial argument could say, well, what about all these physical elements? If they're uh, from a different dimension, why is it that they're having a physical effect? I think that that's probably because they can be a bit of both and they can manipulate um, matter. They can manipulate whatever they want, can't they? So I think that's something to bear in mind. And then another thing to bear in mind also is I think that there are instances where there are craft and technology that are beyond what most of us know about, which are seen in the air and like the stuff what do you think those are like do you like think the stealth bomber are, yeah you mean like human-made technology yeah there's this military technology that hasn't yet been announced and people yeah. see that and i think that probably does account for a good number of ufo sightings as well yeah and i, I think that's probably what this aerial task force are based on and i wonder as well as the idea of sort of pumping money into the military for unknown threat that can be anything they want it to be. I think there's also the idea of using this as uh, a reliable source of misinformation, you know, a reliable source of unreliable information that they can pump out, you know, because if they are testing all this new gear and stuff, then then what better than to go public and say, yeah, there's some stuff we don't know up there 
you know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. Don't worry. Um, you know, and, and, and that can be used as a smokescreen for what actually they want to be doing up there. Um, you know, whether that's developing something new, new technologies, new weapons or whatever, you I, know. I think as a, as a whole, I mean, you know, when we talk about the uh, ultra-terrestrial theory, it's so, we've said before, it's just so kind of, it keeps changing and it kind of, by its very nature, it's almost trickstery. It's almost, um, it fucks with people. And yeah. it works in whether it's intentionally or whether it's just because it's a, a way that we don't understand. And simply that alone means perhaps that we'll never know. So I think we can wrap this up by saying, so why is this important to Vasey? Why have we spent so long just now discussing this? Three hours. Yeah. <laughs> so we're in the better part of three hours now. Why, why have we put so much significance into this ultra-terrestrial hypothesis? Um. Well, to me, it just really resonates like because it incorporates so many things that I'm interested in. And I think it's, that's probably the same for you. It's like we said, yeah. the unified theory. It's as close as we get to a unified theory of the occult, isn't it? It can bring it all together. It's like you, know, you, you don't just need to read a book. You don't need to read like a book about Bigfoot and then a book about aliens and then a book about magic. You can just read one book. Yeah, that's but that also it, it counts for your mind as well, isn't it? You don't have to be holding in your mind, well, there's Bigfoot over here and there's a UFO over there and then you've got the Loch Ness Monster and, you know, there's spirits and everything. Um, and then and then Crowley raised something, you know, summoned something. It's it's all probably interconnected in, it's some, in some way, it? the same thing, yeah. And it, it is, it's like an interesting gestalt, isn't it? You know, like you've got the whole thing there for you. And it, it's tempting. I mean, there's a temptation to be lazy with it as well, you know, just think, oh, it's all just you know, this energy of, you know, it's like, I don't know, spirits, yeah, something, I don't know. But then I, I think that there's definitely something in it that, that there's a, a lot of what is unexplained are, are probably variations on one theme. Yeah, it feels to me like um, a more kind of modern of the times read on it. It feels like more appropriate to the times we live in now. It feels like a more modern theory. And it's. It, I, I had a look just out of interest before at the Wikipedia page for the ultra-terrestrial theory. Oh, yeah. And it still describes it as a fringe theory, which was quite interesting, really, because you would have thought, but I guess it's just that the things I choose to read are, are well into... more fringe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but the things I choose to read have all got it as being like a, a, a big deal that everyone knows about. But really, if you think about, like, say... Most of the people we know <laughs> we, we just think when you say UFO or alien, they just think, oh, a little man from space in a spaceship. Yeah, uh, like, th You know, so to us, it seems obvious. And I, I think um, we've got to bear that in mind and just preach to as many people as we can. I, I think as well, I think specifically for the quest of Vase, I think that as we discussed briefly in the last episode, embracing these ideas or certain components of these ideas has really allowed me to open my mind to new ideas and, and new ways of thinking. And in many ways, that's sort of the foundation of what Vase is, you know, to reevaluate the very nature of reality in the world around us and within us. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it gave me sort of, um, it's given me like a, I don't want to say a purpose in life, but it's given me a project it's given me like a, a a number of projects it's given me like a, a drive something that i want to investigate and look into and i i, I 
you know, I've, I've said to you before, way before we started Vase, like I'm never happier than when I have a project, when I have something to focus <laughs> yeah. on and, and, and to both in a, in a, in terms of researching and then after researching, creating and all the things I enjoy the most involve a fair bit of reading and researching and then, uh, going in and creating something. Um, yeah. And, and, and it's such a rich area to be looking into as well, you know, because this idea of the ultra terrestrials hypothesis, you've got UFOs, you've got cryptids, you've got magic, you've got spirits, ghosts, all of this stuff, you know, all this stuff. I mean, it's like the Osborne book of ghosts, the Osborne book of UFOs and the Osborne book of monsters are all one book. Yeah. And we're now reading it. And boy, what a know. book. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that this is sort of probably as, as close to a sort of universal theory for all this stuff as, as, as we can get. Um, and, I suppose it's fundamental now to the path that we're sort of looking on and that we're investigating. Yeah. And we can go off, we can take this off onto different tangents, you know, uh, yeah. I, like I know you've been reading heavily into magic. I've read a bit about magic with, I'm looking into like the time loop stuff and the dreaming stuff. And like, it's just, we're, we're kind of each taking it in our different ways and then bringing it together and, you know, and this theory is sort of central to it all or some variation of this theory or, or something like that. So um, just to sort of conclude, um, uh, we didn't do this in the last episode, but um, I think, um, you know, I've, I've got some questions now to ask. One is percentages. So sort of uh, you, you, you ultra-terrestrial hypothesis. Yeah. Um, what, what percentage do you think is, is just in people's minds alone and, and how much do you think is manifest reality? Of of what? Sorry, of the ultra terrestrial. So are we are we discounting nuts and bolts now? Yes, let's give it a nuts and bolts. Not oh, okay. interested. That's a hundred percent real. We know that, <laughs> or, but we don't. We just don't know what it is. It's um, it, it's, it's earthly. Yeah, I would say twenty percent people's minds. Eighty. So you think? Yeah, actual 80. shit going down. Yeah, yeah. That's what yeah, I'd no, like to I, believe. I think I'd agree with that. I think I think that more, more than a lot of these other theories, I think that there's there's something in this. There's something that's always been there. You know, whether yeah. it's whether it's fairies, whether it's witchcraft, you know, tales of vampires from various countries across the world, these things turn up. I mean, Valet's good in that it's not USA based. It's a lot of it's European, but I mean, yeah. you, you, you only, like you were saying, there's Brazil, Africa, India, um, you know, I mean, probably less in the Antarctic and that sort of place. There's loads but, of shit in Brazil and it's, it's usually always like Jesus related because it's a really Catholic country. Yeah. But I mean, cross cultures, cross the world, the, the, there's something that will fit the description of these entities. Yeah, it's just viewed through a different cultural lens, so it's kind of yeah. slightly different. But it's all, like Keel said, the same, the same data, the same pattern. And um, I'd like to encourage anyone who might be listening to this, if you there's anything that you want to talk to us about, or any encounters that you want to describe to us, or any advice you've got, or even if you think that you might be a good guest for the show or anything like that, if you want to email us, you can get us on faceinfo at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, um, which is at vase and then vase spelt backwards. So that's at V A Y S E S-Y-A-V and the same for um, 
It's in the show notes. You'll find it. Yeah, it'll be in the show notes. You do the same for um, uh, Instagram. And finally, um, we didn't do this in the last episode, but I'd like to ask you now, like, is there anything that you've been really listening to or watching recently? Um, I know that you've been, you've been telling me about some interesting music you've been listening to uh, any, or any books you've been reading that you'd like to give people um, the heads up. Uh, yeah, so I mentioned I've just finished uh, Cosmic Trigger Part 1 by Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, it was an audio book. I didn't read the actual book, but it's one of the best things I've ever read. It's f- phenomenal. It's just really great. And for anyone who's interested in all this stuff, it's like it's almost like the beginning. It's almost like everything is covered. It's sort of oh, years ahead of its time, and it's a, it's a fantastic book. I'd highly recommend it. I'm looking forward to... Uh, reading the next parts. Uh, I've just started reading Time Loops by Eric Wargo, which no doubt we'll mention in more detail, but it's to do with, again, it's mind-blowing shit, and it's to do with like non-linear time and retro-causality, and it's it's insane. It's really great. Um, and I've just finished uh, Liminal Dreaming by Jennifer Dumper, or Dumpert, I don't know how to pronounce her name, and that's all to do with... Um, like the idea of hypnagogic states and experiments you can do within that, uh, which is something I'm really interested in because I love getting into hypnagogic states. And uh, it's, um, yeah, it's got a series of different like experiments you can do to kind of channel things from your subconscious. And uh, just before the, uh, the sh- with the re- started recording tonight, I actually got a, um, a voice, a text, a voice to voice record. Ah, I'm so voice tired. Recording. Yeah, it's like an app that that, that turn, starts recording when you've voice activated. That's the word I'm looking for. A voice activated recorder app on my phone. So I had a nap before we started and uh, I put it next to me and I, uh, I, I said all of the little words that came to me in the hypnagogic state, all the weird little phrases that kind of flip through your head. Um, I spoke all these out loud and recorded it and the recording was quite disturbing and yeah yeah it was sinister sounding that was the i think one of the things was because it it cuts out uh the between sections where you're not saying anything where you're asleep so you just end up with like a blast of phrases that are all spoken in this weird half asleep voice and uh some of them were were pretty like one of them was the mouth guy it's the mouth guy and so <laughs> the mouth guy is now something that i need to look into so yeah that's what i've been reading um listening to um i've been listening to a ton of honor tricks point never because i love his stuff and um i've not listened to his older stuff for a while so i've been listening to a lot of his stuff because i was on holiday and uh it just seemed like a nice thing to listen to on holiday um and yeah god i listen to so much music that's i i should probably recommend someone um less well-known to listen to uh, because he's like super famous. Um, But to be honest, I can't think off the top of my head right now, but there's plenty of great music out there. So go on Bandcamp and find it. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll recommend the books that we've talked about. um, So Passport to Magonia by Jacques Vallée, Mothman Prophecies by John Keel, uh, Operation Trojan Horse by John Keel, I'm reading at the moment. Um, Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts or The Complete Cipher of the Euphonauts by Dr. Alan Greenfield. Um, again, I'm reading the second part of that now. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Agnes Obel recently. Oh, yeah, like yeah. That. Yeah, it's very like um, 
there's there's some element of uh of the other about that music definitely i love that um field lines cartographer i've been listening to a lot of that um we are interviewing him or we have interviewed him i don't know where this episode is going to lie in terms huh. of um timings um and um dream tides is an excellent album um can you, the usual in the podcasts, uh, I've been listening to a bit of uh, stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, that's some of that's quite good. Again, you got to take it with a grain of salt. Um, what magic is this? I've nearly listened to all of that now. Um, Spirit Box. Yeah, I've um, started listening to that. Um, so those are, are the recommendations for this week. Um, so I, th- I think that's everything, isn't it? So to wrap up, yeah. I have a quote by Jacques Vallée. Um, And he says that the solution may lie forever beyond our grasp. The apparent logic of our more elementary deductions may evaporate. Perhaps what we search for is no more than a dream that becoming part of our lives never existed in reality. We cannot be sure that what we study is something real because we do not know what what reality is. We can only be sure that our study will help us understand more, far more about ourselves. Brilliant. That sums up Vase nicely. I think that's it. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Thank you indeed. And good night. I've got one more question for you, Charles. We might cut this out. We might leave it in as the music fades, but who would win in a fight between Jacques Vallée and Jacques Renault? And are we talking Vallée in his prime or Vallée age 80 or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I think I think if you took Jacques Renault in his prime to Jacques Vallée in his, uh, in, in his dotage, then... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> then, then, then I, I think I'd probably go with the thing is that, that Jacques Renault is nasty as well isn't he oh he'd fight um, dirty yeah yeah exactly um, whereas I think that um, in his prime I think Valet would be nimble oh far more than, everyone's nimble compared with Renault yeah so I think that um, I think that uh, and, and I, I suspect that Valet wouldn't want to fight either I think he'd nimbly avoid the situation Mm. Uh, I think he'd probably run circles around Renault. Well, he could just run away from Renault. Yeah. Like, you know, I don't know, Renault is like cocaine and whiskey and all sorts, you know. Yeah, I mean, the problem with Renault is that he comes with brothers, doesn't he? He comes with brothers and Leo Johnson. Yeah, so, I mean, but then, you know, I mean, would you have then, like, Jacques Vallée with Kiel and Greenfield? Oh, now <laughs> dream <talking>. team. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to mess with them as a, as a unit. No, that would be a, a unit indeed, an absolute unit. <laughs> <laughs> I love that phrase. <laughs> uh, I think, I think that's it. 